Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. So, we're here with, I'm Joe Rocky, and this is Father Boniface Hicks. And knowing that Easter is coming up here, one of the topics we were going to talk about here today is the Mass, how it might be a little bit different than it was for the last time you were there, depending upon how long ago it's been since you've been there. Uh, Father, when did they change everything up? That translation came into effect Advent of 2011, so the very end of 2011. Okay. So about just a little over five years ago. Okay. Well, since this being the uh, the part of our podcast is to get people to come to church and, and get them to reach out to other people to come to church, um, there's a possibility that we're going to have some people out there who um, who haven't had the, the different words, but kind of focusing on today why it was changed the thoughts behind it, because I have some questions on that, and the overall um, mass structure in general. So, maybe it would be best if we go through it, just the order of the mass from coming in and all the way through to, you know, leaving. So, with that being said, there's no one who's going to know the cycle of the mass than the one who says masses all the time. So, why don't we let you, uh, you kick off with, with what the protocol should be, Father? Okay, well, I, I guess since you're giving me the opportunity, I would like to say that uh, Mass really ought to begin for all of us a little bit before Mass begins. Okay. <laughs> In other words, uh, we should try and get to church a little bit early. And that certainly applies for the priest. One of the things you've noticed, anybody who's gone to Mass, is that the priest wears different clothes at Mass than he does any other time. Mm -hmm. And the process of putting those clothes on, which we call vestments, is uh, already includes prayer. So the priest starts his prayers already putting his vestments on. And I think for the people in the pews, the same kind of thing should happen. Even most people will come in and genuflect to the presence of Jesus in the tabernacle and then enter the pew and then kneel down and then say some prayer of preparation just to get ourselves in the mindset. We, we should always be cultivating a sense of the presence of God. The reality is that we're more attentive to him in church than out of church, so mm -hmm. we want to be at our best before the Mass. So if I can say the Mass starts before the Mass, and invite uh, myself and our listeners to take plan on a few minutes. You know, plan on getting there 5, 10, even 15 minutes early. It's wonderful. I made a 40-day retreat when I was a deacon, so a little over 10 years ago. Such a blessing. But one of the practices at the retreat center where I went was to have a full half hour of silent prayer before and after every Mass. Mm. And it was amazing. And all the retreatants over all the years that this priest, Father Sylvan, conducted those retreats, they all commented, and many of them, almost all of them were priests and religious, said, it really affected my experience of the Mass to have that half hour of prayer before and after Mass. So I'll set that out as an unattainable ideal, that everybody would have a half hour of prayer, but then if we can reduce that to even 5, 10, 15 minutes, what a difference it makes, just to settle ourselves and be focused on entering more fully into the, more attentively into the presence of God. And then, uh, 
music and the mass is its whole own interesting subject, but typically while there the procession begins into the mass, we have some music. It's not necessary. Um, but anyway, some kind of opening hymn. Mm-hmm. And uh, the priest moves with the servers into the sanctuary, kisses the altar, uh, comes to the chair. And then we always have, uh, at the beginning of the, of the Mass, we, we pray that well-known Catholic prayer, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the sign of the cross. Mm-hmm. And then there's a little greeting of peace. And then the priest always invites us in calling to mind our sins. It sounds kind of funny right up front why why we do this and he even says these words which are prescribed by the church brothers and sisters let us acknowledge our sins so as to prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries how does acknowledging our sins prepare us to celebrate the sacred mysteries well fundamentally the sacred mysteries are about receiving god's love Mm -hmm. and because we are sinners it's always a matter of receiving god's mercy And we will receive God's mercy better if we're more aware of our need for it. And so fundamentally, at the beginning of every Mass, we make ourselves aware of how much we need God, how much we need His love, how much we need His mercy. And if we can remember our sinfulness, maybe some particular sins, our weakness, again, the the reasons that we really need Him. Uh, if we can bring to him the things that weigh us down, the things that we feel overwhelmed by, the things that we feel powerless in the face of, these are all tied into that preparation that we have at the beginning of the Mass. Now, the priest doesn't pause very long because the presumption is, really, we know our sinfulness, we know our weakness, we know our need for God's mercy. We're just calling that to mind. We're just sort of getting ourselves in that mindset. Oh, this is where I come in need before a Father who loves me. Mm-hmm. And that's what that transition uh, involves at the very beginning of Mass. Not that we're making a full examination of conscience or going over our entire lives or something like that in the course of three seconds of silence. Um, Then uh, just to identify the kind of main pieces after that, again, we have introductory rites which involve uh, calling to mind our sins. Then we have a liturgy of the word. We hear some readings from the scripture that are given to us, and there's a cycle that's prepared. You can find out what the readings on April 21st in the year 2037 will be. Um, you know, it's a, the cycle of readings is set and uh, repeats itself. A three-year cycle of readings for Sundays and a two-year cycle of readings for weekdays. And we cover, we touch everything in the Bible. So we don't actually read every verse of the Bible. We do read every verse of the Gospels. We read practically every verse of the New Testament, and then we touch on everything in the Old Testament. It's really very thorough. So over the course to, of two years, you cover the every all four of them, all verses. Oh yeah, huh. yeah. For the actually, it's a one-year cycle for the Gospels. So really, every year, if you go to Mass every day, you cover all four Gospels. Well, how, uh, every the, verse. Now this just gets in the, in the just logistical how question. If there's only really one resurrection story, all four of them wrote it different ways, but there's only one day of Easter that we read it, or is it that basically the earlier mass counts for a different time than the later mass than a later mass? Is that how it's done? Well, we read from the resurrection accounts every day in the Easter season for 50 days. 
Okay. So uh, we do actually cover all four Gospels, all four resurrection accounts, huh. or series of resurrection accounts. Again, I'm talking about daily Mass. Oh, okay. So I was just thinking of Sundays. My bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the, the Sunday Mass cycle is a three-year cycle of readings, and we still cover a pretty substantial amount because there are pretty big chunks of, uh, of the Gospels that are read. And every Sunday of Easter, we read from those resurrection accounts. So it's still seven Sundays across three years is, is 21 gospel readings that are often a big chunk of a chapter. The resurrection accounts only comprise uh, one to two chapters of each of the gospels. And we cover those pretty substantially okay. in, the, in the Easter. So even just going to Sunday Mass. But, but in daily, I'm talking about daily Mass for the two-year Actually, in a one-year cycle of daily Mass, if you went to Mass every day for a year, you'd, you'd read all four Gospels about in their entirety. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, so in the Liturgy of the Word, that's, uh, that's God's Word to us. He's speaking to us, reminding us of what He's done, reminding us of His promises. It's, uh, and, and the priest then kind of applies the readings, or the uh, deacon or the bishop, applies the readings to our, our modern context, our daily life in the 21st century, mm -hmm. and that's uh, in the homily. Um, we have some petitions. We, we give our yes to all of this in the creed, saying, I believe. And, uh, and then we move into the liturgy of the Eucharist, which is, broadly speaking, the second half of the Mass. Mm -hmm. And in the liturgy of the Eucharist, all that we have spoken about in the first half is now made concrete, tangible, is made flesh. The word becomes flesh. And so fundamentally in the second half of the Mass is the representation. And that love is most fully revealed on the cross. And so we think about ourselves coming before Calvary. Mary and John, the women were there 2,000 years ago, but all of us are just as really there, just as truly there as they were. They were there physically, we are there mysteriously, sacramentally. We can get into a whole thing about that, but just to say it very simply, that reality is made present to us again. We encounter that reality through faith. So... Um, but that, that reality is made present to us, the body and blood of Christ, his physical, his, his real presence is, is uh, made manifest again through the Eucharistic sacrifice. And then we receive his body and blood in Holy Communion. And then the final blessing. So mm -hmm. that's the, uh, just to summarize, we have the penitential rite at the very beginning. We have the liturgy of the word we have the liturgy of the Eucharist. We have Holy Communion. And, and the then, end. And there's are big parts. So, um, so going into some of the changes of it, during the first section, calling our sins, we changed up a couple words of the prayer. You're just going to ha have that. But one of the questions I have with it is that it goes, I have greatly sinned through my fault, um, I'm blanking on how it's said exactly. Through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Yes, through grievous fault. That's the part I was looking for. Why? I mean, obviously that was new, um, as of 2011. So, so news relative. You know, you do something for 25 years, even five years later, still seems a little bit new. But, um, but that being said, 
why is first off is it kind of expected or is this just something everyone does whenever they essentially either point at themselves or hit themselves in the chest depending upon how who it is um, during that portion of the prayer kind of what is the point of that and why is that emphasized if it even should be well let me just make a point first of all in terms of the changes to say very emphatically and clearly the mass did not change mm-hmm. and I mean that so strongly that the Latin translation of the Mass had absolutely no changes. And most other languages also did not. If you went to a Spanish Mass in 2008 and you went to a Spanish Mass today, it would be exactly the same. Because just English is dumb. (laughs) Is that basically the part there? So what happened is that the English Mass was retranslated. That's it. Okay. So nothing else changed. Just the English Mass was retranslated. Okay. Just to make that clear. Uh, now, the other languages are supposed to also be retranslated. There was a. The, the reason for that was uh, a principle of translation that was taken up. We never had translation in the Roman Rite until 1970. Mm-hmm. For you know, essentially 2,000 years, we always used Latin. So there wasn't a need to translate officially for the liturgy. So how did they translate? Well, you can, you can translate something in a kind of uh, a literal way or a more direct way, or you can translate something in a more uh, indirect, expressive way mm-hmm. that's, that has the same meaning, one would hope, <laughs> but doesn't necessarily translate as translate the words as directly. So the principle that was used in 1970 was a little bit more dynamic equivalence, as they call it. Same meaning, but you kind of rephrase it to make it sound more natural in English. And uh, in the year 2000, a document was produced on translation for liturgical texts, and Rome at that time said, no, we, we really need the more direct translation. So not okay. just sort of glossing over these things, but but a more direct translation. So what we have in 2011 is a more direct translation of the Latin. So if we go back what in time it, just to like the 60s, um, for some of our viewers out there, or listeners out there, sorry, not viewers, um, they never had the Mass in English, so they didn't... So there's a lot of people who just said words and didn't know what they meant. Is that kind of how it was? Um, I don't know who knew what uh, in terms of how they meant, but uh, what what you generally have is you'd have a uh, a hand missile, uh, a a book that had the Latin on one side and the English on the other side. Mm. But the English was an unofficial translation. So if you get one of those little hand missiles, you get five of them. You might have five different translations, but nobody cares because. It's not, you know, it's the translation just for your understanding. It's not the translation that we need to say together officially as the liturgical prayer. Okay. And so whoever translated in whatever way they wanted to, and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, but in terms of having an official translation that we would pray together, that yeah, just didn't exist. There was no need for it. That, that made me bring up another question that 
I was never thought of. I just made an assumption about it. Was whenever I'm at, I'm at church, I notice that there tends to be a, a a pretty much generational divide between the people who are reading, and then just versus the people who are just sitting there and listening. And it tends to be the people who would have been around before that conversion um, of of them starting to translate that sit there and read everything as is being said versus just kind of listening and for the prayer parts going from memory and so on and so forth. That's, uh, that makes a lot more sense to that. Um, you know, at one point I just had, well, maybe they can't hear good, so they're reading it, but then there was like, there's no way everybody can't hear good. <laughs> so, so that's a nice little, um, reason why. That's just, that was just a fun fact aside there. I had no idea. So sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, there's a some of that is kind of parish culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the connection you're making may be true, and uh, there was also a kind of a push actually after the translation. I think to get away from that idea of reading to make a break from the previous culture of having your book in hand and and following along with some of those things. There was an encouragement for more listening. And then, I don't know, there's been a sort of another wave of people saying, well, I don't comprehend as well when I just listen, so I'd rather read, and so you get that kind of thing. And anyway, there's, um, in places where people were more firm about one position or the other, you may have more or less of that. But, uh, yeah, sort of an interesting interesting question. Yeah, that was just an aside thought there. So, okay, so at the end of the day here, Nothing's substantially changed, but the terminology changed, and we went from more of yeah the translation into English. Yes, so, yes, like, yes. Really specific to that, which, which makes so, sense why Spanish wouldn't have changed because that basically was Latin for more or less their well, no, correlations the language-wise are the, much the Spanish closer. W- no, no. Uh, the Spanish is even the Spanish is even worse than the English in oh, terms right. of its in terms of its translation from the Latin. There's more free-form adjustments that happen in the Spanish than happen in the English. So it's really a principle of translation if you're going to rephrase things. So to come back to your question, mm-hmm. um, we used to say uh, through, um, that I have, I have, uh, through what I've done, what I've failed to do, um, I don't know, maybe that phrase wasn't even in there at all. But in the Latin it says, Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. My fault, my fault, my most grievous, or my, my maximal, if you really get literal about it, my most grievous fault. So when they translated that into English in 1970, they left out that entirely. Mm-hmm. There is no mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. It's just gone. So and they did that kind of thing in the Spanish as well. Another example uh, is... Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that got translated into English in 1970 as, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you. So the idea is meant to be the same, mm-hmm. receiving, entering under the roof. But there's a whole, there's a, there's a, uh, a scriptural passage that that's referring to with, with the centurion who says, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. He says that literally, and that's what that's referring to. When you just translate it as receive you, you lose that whole... Con- so that that makes sense. Then as, as a follow-up to that, so essentially going back and, and bringing it all together, when we did it the first wave, that would have been as I was a child and growing up, 
it was more to get the transition from everyone had to read everything they didn't under, unless you spoke Latin which is a dead language you didn't really truly understand it so it went from reading it to giving you the expression of it and now we're getting back to closer to the direct translations and then basically at the end of the day this is a conversation about why are the translations different and we just had a gap of time where they were less literal so we are now closer to what it should have been the whole time with a gap there of what 30 years or so where it just was a little bit more loosely done okay that that makes sense so there's um so so the, then there's the question so so when it does come time cuz cuz you had stuff changed up there at the altar too that is different and some of them now just makes me questions about it cuz it used to be I forget what part it is but it says peace with everybody or peace be with you and then it became peace to people of goodwill and that was always one of the things I wondered why did they switch that since you know Jesus goes out and says be meek blessed are those who you know, treat their neighbor or and their enemy just as well you know turn the other cheek and that seemed to be if we're only giving peace to people of goodwill essentially people who want peace that seems like it's a little bit out of whack with the rest of it and, and that's part of my question for that and, and where we're at there so I'm just uh, going to see if I can bring this up quickly enough to uh, to be useful. You're uh, you're speaking about the Gloria, and the the Gloria in the Mass is actually just quoting Scripture. It's uh, literally the words of the angel angels to the shepherds, oh. and uh, the first part of it anyway. And so uh, so we actually have to go from Greek for that to, to really get the uh, the right sense of it. But the angels appeared to the shepherds if you go to Luke chapter 2, verse 14, and they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The problem is that that phrase, people of goodwill, with whom he is pleased, um, it, it depends on how you apply the phrase to the whether you make it adverbial or I don't remember all the details, but it's a it's a disputed translation what what exactly is meant there so you can keep things ambiguous if you leave them in Greek but when you have to translate them and and pick a direction is it going to be this or is it going to be that well you know then then you got to make a decision so one problem is that every translator is a traitor as they say uh, we're always betraying the original meaning in some way or another and okay. so there's always a degree that's imperfect um, people of goodwill uh, is essentially you can understand that as being God's grace is offered to everyone, but if we're not of goodwill, we can't receive it. Okay. So we, we need some goodwill in order to be able to receive his grace. Okay. And uh, anyway, just uh, just one way that you can you can turn that. You have to always take all of these texts in context uh, that God isn't sort of changing all the rules on us, you know, from one book of the Bible to the next, when it says that God's grace is for all, that Jesus came to save sinners, that, um, 
you know, all, uh, anyway, that, that uh, he, there are many occasions where it says that all are, are meant to be saved. God, God wants to save everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that applies to these other things, too. You have to interpret them in that context. So. Okay. So um, that, that was the question there, because... Um... Because also, even during the, uh, the when you're doing your consecration, it, it, it was changed and seemed to be a little bit more limiting in the way that the language came out. Um, now, I, I don't remember exactly, because I'm not the one who said it every day, um, how it was earlier, but it basically was um, this body for everybody yeah. instead of, you know, However, this is the, the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whereas we used to say, uh, will be shed for you and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Um, so why for many instead of for all? Yeah. I actually wrote a little blog about that. If you want to go to uh, fatherboniface.org and my blog, Monastic Musings, and you can find a little uh, explanation of the for all that's based on Pope Benedict XVI wrote a letter describing the reason for uh, focusing on uh, or, or adjusting the translation back to the original. Again, in Latin, it is um, pro vobis et pro multis. Pro multis means for many, period. Mm-hmm. You, you can't, you never translate Latin multis into all never <laughs> so except, for in the 70s. Uh, except for in the 70s right you know uh and and that was the the desire was to incorporate an interpretation into the translation okay so what does what does for many mean well jesus does intend to uh save all now all and many can be the same thing mm-hmm. you know if there are 10 of us in a room and we say, and, and all of us are men, we could say that many of us are men. That's still true. Yes. Uh, but many we... happens to be the same as all in that case. But um, so it's not, it's not false. But anyway, the, the idea that you could interpret, you could add an interpretation to the translation is the attitude that was taken in the 70s. And uh, in the end, you can't provide an interpretation into every translation. Ultimately, you always need an explanation. Mm-hmm. There's no translation that's going to make this podcast not necessary. <laughs> we need somebody to help us understand, to explain. We need a magisterium. We need a teaching body. We need teachers to help us understand. You're never going to have a translation that makes it unnecessary to have someone else provide an interpretation. And so that's what basically we abandoned that possibility of having this sort of interpretive translation. And we just went back to just tell us what it says in the Latin. Let's just focus on what it says in the Latin. And then the things that we don't understand, let's talk about them and understand. Okay. So, so that makes a a ton of sense. So here is, is, as we got about two minutes or so left in this particular cast, knowing that we're going to have a bunch of people coming to Easter um, that that maybe don't come regularly, you know, a bunch of family members, maybe it's even us ourselves. What is something that that you would want to get to those people directly, if you can say it directly, or maybe through 
the individual who's listening to this who may pass it on to their child or cousin or whoever, what message would you want to give to them in preparation of Easter? I guess I would encourage anybody who goes to try and take up a little bit of awe and wonder, to come with an open heart, to try and abandon all of the cynicism, all of the uh, negative impressions of the past, all of the routine qualities of it, and just come with a new heart. Easter is a time that God wants to give us new life. He wants to shine a new light on our lives. We don't just believe in a wisdom figure who lived 2,000 years ago and left us some ideas. We believe in a man who is alive, who is God, and he's with us. And he wants to meet us. And he wants to help us, love us, lift us up and make us better, make us great. So if we can come with a little bit of awe and wonder in our hearts, a little bit of openness for what God can do in my life if I give him a chance, I think it's a better way to approach the Mass. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, please have everyone, hopefully this this podcast uh, helped you, and please carry that into this Easter season. Thank you guys very much. And-